Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, Leisured City, we're exploring the West End of London, where squares and streets were built on aristocratic estates, and where the wealthy have flocked ever since. Not that the rich have had everything their own way. Some neighbourhoods proved less desirable than their owners might have wished. Others have seen retail, and worse, trespass on elite enclaves. But if the East End has always been where the real work of the city gets done, the West End is where those with the readies come to invest and to spend it. In recent years, much of the spending has come from overseas. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers, But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this second episode, we'll see how one part of the West End came down in the world, while another stayed up. Soho and St. James's started up at more or less the same time. By the 19th century, though, there was a clear divide. It was reinforced when Regent Street became a barrier between the neighbourhoods where you kept your wealth to the West and the places where you spent it to the east, courtesy of immigrants and others who knew how to have a good time. We'll start the story more recently, though, outside the brand new Tottenham Court Road station. It's where the northern and central lines cross and where the new Elizabeth line has almost made the past invisible. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Tottenham Court Road. We're between two entrances to the tube here. We're on the southeast corner of Bloomsbury where we ended the last episode. It's clearly a major intersection. We've got two main roads crossing. We've got three subways underneath and it's been transformed in recent years. But we've got to peel back the layers a bit. What have we got? Ahead of us, we've got a strange gold wall with adverts playing turning round from the gold wall straight ahead of me I've got Tottenham Court Road it's a very old road leads north to a manor house by the 17th century it's a place for entertainment it has a gooseberry fair by the 19th century there's furniture making here by the early 20th century there are big department stores and then in the middle of the 20th century it starts selling actually surplus World War II radio equipment and then Japanese electronics that's Tottenham Court Road It intersects with Oxford Street, which we've met before. It's the old main road out of the city. By the 19th century, it's a problematic area. There are new roads built here to clear the slums in this neighbourhood, to improve the traffic flow. The one we're actually standing on is Charing Cross Road, built right at the end of the 19th century, soon becomes Bookshop Central. Foyle's very famous bookshop just down the street. But the real story here starts off in the post-war, after World War II. The London County Council wants to improve the traffic flow. Cars are taking off. But this provides an opportunity for developers, not the aristocratic developers we talked about in the last episode, but new modern developers. Very cannily, they buy up areas around main intersections. And then if the London County Council wants to develop them, the developer gets waivers on all the rules about what you can develop and how, on density, on height. And the one we're looking at next to this gold wall is Centre Point. It's one of the first tower blocks in London. The London County Council in return gets some land for a roundabout which it in fact never builds. That was its grand idea here. And the developer is called Harry Hyams. He hires a man called Richard Seifert. We met him briefly in the last episode. He trained in the 1920s-30s in the University of London. And over the years in the post-war period, he develops 600 buildings. He's known for not being very public, but delivering projects on time and on budget. He is the developer's darling. The critics at the time hate almost everything he made. And this is one of the famous ones. The developer made out like a bandit. 
He invested 3.5 million. He left the whole building empty while it appreciated because of where it was. And he eventually cashed out with an 11 million profit. Nice money if you can get it. By that point, this area is changing just to our south beyond the gold wall here. We've got Denmark Street, 17th century street, making metalwork by the 19th century. In the 1930s, it's known as Little Tokyo. It's where Japanese restaurants are setting up. But in the post-war period, it becomes the center of the music scene. It's a place where publishers operate. There are studios, there are music shops. The Rolling Stones record in number four, Denmark Street. The Sex Pistols live in number six. Bowie hangs out at a cafe at number nine. It's an important place. But fast forward 50 years, more or less, and the world has moved on. Electronics on Tottenham Court Road have moved online. Music has become big business. Books, thank God, are still with us. But the city still needs connecting. We never have the infrastructure we need. And so Crossrail comes to town. This is the story here. This is one of the main intersections for this new fast east-west line linking London together. Around the station there are one billion pounds worth of development. They knock down an old theatre, the Astoria. It was a warehouse in the 1920s. It becomes a big music venue by the 1980s. Acid House gets going here. And what's replaced it is this gold wall. It's Outernet London. I don't know who came up with the name. It's just opened. It includes a 2,000-person capacity venue, a 465-quid-a-night hotel, and according to the CEO, it is, quote, the world's largest, most advanced atrium of content, a disruptive, atomized brand engagement platform. In other words, this is building as advertising. This is where London now is. But all of this exists because it's on the boundary of several great estates, dating way back four centuries. Those estates are themselves divided by an old Roman road. It makes sense to put modern roads here. We can hear the traffic on them in the background. And therefore, also, because it's a major intersection, it's a good place to put other things, like subways, like offices, like shopping, which we see around us today. But, as we already know from the first episode in this walk, life in the West End is not lived at the main intersections. It's lived in the smaller squares, the smaller streets, the cafes, the smaller venues, above a shop where you can begin to record your first album, perhaps. So we're going to walk into Soho. Leave the gold wall on your left and cross the street. Go between the two new modern blocks on the other side of Charing Cross Road. between those two modern buildings on our left we can see a red brick church and you can hear the bells we're crossing the road now and we're aiming for this strange misshaped timber framed building in the middle of the square we're going to stand next to that and look at what's around us So here we are in Soho Square, next to this strange little building, with a whole jumble of buildings around the sides of the square. We know that Bloomsbury Square was the first of the squares of the West End, and it was soon followed by three others. St James, which we're going to see in the second half of this episode, Soho, where we are now, and Hoxton, which we saw on a previous walk around the East End. These days, of course, all of these are very different places, and that story of how they become different tells you a lot about what they're about. The story here in Soho Square is familiar. It used to belong to religious foundations. Henry VIII seizes it. He turns it into a hunting park. That's where the name Soho comes from. Originally, it's a hunting cry. So he would ricochet around this area trying to hunt down animals. 
Soon enough, the crown, actually Elizabeth I, is giving away bits of it. The crown always needs money, supporters and things like that. And then a hundred years later, after the restoration in 1660, it's built up by a whole assortment of developers. They're generally following the old field system here, which runs north-south. It means most of the streets here in Soho are north-south. It's difficult to get from east to west. And also it's not a single estate. There are multiple owners here, so there's much less coordination. But here in Soho Square, you have one person responsible. This is built up in the late 17th century by a bricklayer, actually, and a timber merchant, not an aristocrat. A century later, it's fallen on hard times. To fast forward the story a little bit, the rich are moving out of this area. They're also beginning to move out of Bloomsbury, which we've already talked about in the previous episode. They're moving west to Mayfair and to Marylebone. We'll meet them in our next episode. And much more interesting people are moving in. In the first case, we're talking about immigrants. The Huguenots, we met them in the East End in Spitalfields. In the late 17th century, they start getting persecuted in France. They are welcome here. In Spitalfields, they're making silk. Here, they specialize in metalwork, watches, things like this. There are some chapels for them by the end of the 17th century. In the late 18th century, it's the Irish coming in. By the middle of the 19th century, it's European refugees as various European countries fall apart and actually come into existence. So in the 1860s, you have Italians. There's an Italian hotel and restaurant employees benefit society founded in 1886. And there's still pretty good Italian food and delis, importantly, in Soho. Then the French. There's a mini-revolution in France in 1870. The state cracks down and the communards, people who were supporting the Paris Commune, flock here. In July 1871, Marx, who's also living in London at that point, says that London is overrun with refugees. Mainly that's to the north of here in Fitzrovia, but a few of them here in Soho. Early 20th century, more refugees. World War I brings us Belgians. One of the most famous patisseries in London is set up by a Belgian refugee at that point, Patisserie Valerie and more Italians, and on and on and on. Immigrants make Soho in large part. Also, artists and intellectuals. Mozart actually lived in Soho in the late 18th century for a little bit, or at least spent a little bit of time here. Marx, of course, lived here in the late 19th century. So from very early on, Soho was a refuge for immigrants, for artists, and in the 20th century for the queer community, of course, who faced pushback. Some of their clubs are shut down in the 1930s. So the area becomes much richer socially, if not financially, and much more mixed. You've got trade and manufacture here. By the 19th century, Soho is quite overcrowded. You get model housing, you get mansion blocks as opposed to terraced houses. You get entertainment, including eating, importantly, from the late 19th century. Film and media are here in the 20th century. Soho now is the global hub of post-production for Hollywood. I like to think that even Tom Cruise depends on some basements near to where we are. But that's all been made possible also by a crackdown on earlier things that were here, notably sex work. Sex work takes off in Soho in the 60s. It's beginning to be cleaned up, as the phrase has it, in the 70s. So here's P.D. James in the 60s talking about the mix that Soho has become. Soho is all things to all men, catering comprehensively for those needs which money can buy. You see it as you wish. An agreeable place to dine, a cosmopolitan village tucked away behind Piccadilly with its own mysterious village life, one of the best shopping centres for food in London, the nastiest and most sordid nursery of crime in Europe. Even the travel journalists, obsessed by its ambiguities, can't make up their minds. So Soho Square today bears witness to this rich mix. In the square itself, in the garden, we've got this strange misshaped building. That's actually fake. It's built in the 1920s to look as if it's four centuries older. It hides an electricity substation, of all things. In front of it, we've got a statue of Charles II. He let in the Huguenots in the 1660s. And around the square, we have all kinds of things. In the northwest corner, there's a kind of grey brick structure. That's a warehouse built in 1801 for John Trotter. He was the storekeeper general in the wars against Napoleon. And in 1816, he converts it, after the war, to the Soho Bazaar, a quasi-charitable market for female and domestic industry. 
We've got two churches on the square. Next to Trotter's Warehouse, we've got the French Protestant Church, a congregation that had been in existence for three centuries by then, but that's a late 19th century building. On the other side of the square, we walk past another red brick church. That's St. Patrick for the Irish Catholics who are here, and that again replaces an earlier mission chapel. On the south side, we've got a whole range of wonderful things. We've got a beautiful 18th century house, which in the 19th century became the House of St. Barnabas, a homeless charity, and still is today, although it's also been turned into a private members club. In the middle of the south side of the square, cream stucco, we've got something that was rebuilt in 1865 as a hospital for women. That was founded a few years earlier, and it was the first hospital in the world that was open to women of all classes. And then in the corner next to the hospital, we've got a building for 20th Century Fox, built in the 1930s. Film, charity, immigration, this is the story of Soho. From the first, it's been a magnet for immigration, for innovation, for personal expression, and so also for people who are looking for a good time and for people who are looking to exploit that desire. There is supply and demand in Soho too. And this becomes even clearer when we leave the square and start walking the streets. So now we're going to leave the square to the west. We've got our back to the building and to St. Patrick's Church, as well as Charles II. We're heading for the street between Sunrider Europe and Number 37 Soho Square. Head down that street, Carlisle Street. We're heading down Carlisle Street now. At the end of it, we can see a building. Originally, that was actually a 17th century mansion bombed in the war. But we're heading left on Dean Street and then turning right almost immediately on St Anne's Court. We're now on this short little stretch of Dean Street and we've got the wonderful contrast here. We've got number 88, which is actually a newsagent, but this incredible late 18th century frontage, very decorated. And then on the left, a block by the Soho Housing Association, a partnership between the Soho Society, who want to conserve Soho, and the council providing much-needed housing, this one from the 1980s. But again, we're now turning right on St Anne's Court. So we're heading straight down St Anne's Court between restaurants on both sides as well as the Good Housekeeping Institute. At the end we're going to turn left on Wardour Street and again quite quickly turn right on Broadwick Street. We've turned left on Wardour Street. We're going to turn right almost immediately on Broadwick Street. Just pausing here to look at 141. Crazy building, kind of corrugated steel almost, built in the 1930s for Warner Brothers. Film rooted here early. Leave it on your left and continue down Broadwick Street. We're walking down Broadwick Street now. When you see Berwick Street, just stop there by the Blue Post pub. Broadwick Street is, again, very early. It's late 17th century and then develops thereafter. Obviously, none of this is from that period. It's all later. 
if you look left, you've got a very striking building, steel-framed, lots of glass. This is also Richard Rogers. We've met him many times before. He's the one who did the Lloyds building in the city. And it's facing across the street, something which was originally, again, for the movie industry, for Warner Brothers now being turned into a boutique hotel. If we continue down Broadway Street a couple more blocks, we would find a pump. This is commemorating the famous discovery by Jon Snow in the middle of the 19th century that cholera is not transmitted by air, but by water. The pump that used to be there in the middle of the 19th century was infecting the whole neighborhood. If you want to find out more about that story, I suggest reading Stephen Johnson's book, Ghost Map. But we're turning left on Berwick Street and immediately we can smell and hear the food stalls that are now congregated here. This is all very recent. In the early 21st century though, so only 20 years ago, a critic noted that Berwick Street was Soho at its roughest. Battered 18th century houses, plainish later building, mostly old-fashioned trades. We'll see them, fabric shops and other things, as we walk down the street. There's been a market here since the late 18th century. By the turn of the 20th century, there are two rows of 50 stalls selling meat, fish, fruit, veg, raw ingredients, in other words, for the people who live here and the restaurants close by, not the finished products we see today. Then, in the 1950s, late 1950s, the council builds the tower block you see in front of us, 57 council flats in 17 storeys. 20 years ago, though, this area, too, is ripe for gentrification. There's a big fight about it. The tenants in the council block do not like the plans, but it's gone ahead. And as we walk down the street, it's clear that the street has changed. We still have a fabric shop, but we also have a lot of clothing shops as well. We don't have a street market anymore. We have food stores. Continue down Berwick Street, past the food stalls. We'll meet you at the end. We're at the end of Berwick Street now. We've passed the food stalls, a few remaining fabric shops, clothes shops, exciting retail opportunities, new units available for rent. And we're pausing here because we're about to enter Walker's Court. This is the epicentre of another property empire worth lingering on. Paul Raymond opens the Raymond Review Bar in 1958. It's still there at the far end of this court. And within two years, it has 45,000 members. It's a members-only strip club. He buys the freehold, he gets into soft porn publishing in the mid-1960s, but he also starts to build up his property empire. So when the council cracks down on the sex industry, on the strip clubs, the sex shops and so on, he's ready to jump to a new business venture. He builds up a portfolio of 400 properties, and at one point he's thought to be the richest man in England, thanks to the value of those properties. He died, though, in 2008. We're continuing through Walker's Court. It still has one of the last remaining sex shops in Soho, then turning left on Brewer Street. We're at the end of Walker's Court now. When we glance up, we can see Raymond's Review Bar still in operation across the street. Prowler, a booty full of fun. Turn left on Brewer Street, then right on Wardour Street.
We've turned right on Wardour Street now. It's an old lane. On our left, we can see Old Compton Street. This is really the center of the queer community in London. Back in the 18th century, a French enclave. It's seen troubles over the years, even as recently as 1999. There was a neo-Nazi bombing here of a very popular gay pub, the Admiral Duncan. Now we've got St Anne's. We can see a churchyard on our left, an old church, a strange early 19th century tower, bombed in the war and been converted. Now what you've got is a mixed-use scheme. You've still got a small chapel, you've got a rectory, but you've also got the premises for the Soho Society, who are trying to conserve the neighbourhood, and 20 flats for the Housing Association. We're continuing down Wardour Street and we're going to cross Shaftesbury Avenue. So we've crossed Shaftesbury Avenue, we had a couple of theatres on our right, and we can see ahead of us the lanterns which tell us we're in Chinatown. But Chinatown is recent. Chinatown has only been here since the 1970s. That's when the Chinese community in London relocates from Limehouse, close to Canary Wharf, over in the east, to here, and it's built up in these last 50 years. And before Chinatown, of course, there are other things. We're glancing to our right now. We can see a sign for a theatrical costumia, which is a spectacular front, and he's showing off for his potential clients. We're continuing down Wardour Street. On our left, we have Gerrard Street, the main artery of Chinatown. Old buildings converted to new uses, together with gateways. These were put up in 1985 at the three main entrances. We're continuing down Wardour Street to another one, more recent, put up in 2016. We've passed Gerard Street, we're almost at the gateway, but we're turning left on Lyle Street. We're then going to take the next right, Leicester Street. So we've walked down Leicester Street and here we are in Leicester Square and you can hear it going on all around us. There's a street performer going off, there's a Christmas market, there's chaos, as there always is. We're less than half a mile from Soho. We're in another square, but they're very different. They're obviously very different. What's going on? Roll the story back. 17th century, another aristocrat, the Earl of Leicester, gets a license to build a mansion on the north side of the Royal Mews. We met the Royal Mews in our last episode. It's where we started. He gets that license in return for laying out the land with walks for the benefit of the parish, but he doesn't really observe the agreement. He encroaches on them, and basically the square as we see it today is a kind of piecemeal development. His mansion is over in the northeast corner. The square isn't a square at all. It's a very strange shape. And then others start building around him, filling in the streets leading north to Soho. Like Soho, it stays fashionable for a bit. Artists and intellectuals start coming. Isaac Newton lived here, Joshua Reynolds, William Hogarth, who of course gave us the depiction of Gin Lane we met in the last episode. The square goes downhill rapidly, though, when the streets to east and west are extended. Traffic starts coming through. Hotels and entertainment begin to take over. There's a great globe here in the middle of the square in the middle of the 19th century when spectacle is beginning to take off. And around the garden now, a reconstructed garden, we see the various palaces, largely cinemas, devoted to popular culture. Two striking ones to note. On the north side of the square, you've got something that looks quite crazy. It's actually Cinquecento. It's meant to be from the 15th century. It's meant to be in Venice. But in fact, it's copying a theatre from Cincinnati. Originally, this Empire Theatre had 3,226 seats in one auditorium. It's since been subdivided. The way we show movies has changed. On the other side of the square, an Odeon cinema, very austere in many ways, now a digital front. And that replaces other things too. It replaced a late 19th century theatre with minarets, of all things which replaced a panopticon of science and art. Leicester Square, since the 19th century, has been about entertainment. 
So two squares, two different worlds. Soho's bars and cafes, Leicester Square's big screens. But they have things in common too. Culture in this part of the West End has always been popular and democratic, if not always cheap. But they're both quite different from the places we're going to explore in the second half of this episode and the next episode, where wealth has its way. To get there, we're just going to walk a little bit west along Coventry Street. This little street condenses the way entertainment has changed over the years. We're walking down Coventry Street now. On our right, we've got this glass building, quite recent from 2008. It used to be the Swiss Center, a modernist showcase for Swiss culture. We've got a couple of totem poles in the middle of the street with the cantons of Switzerland displayed on them. Those used to be on the roof of the former building. This building now dedicated to M&M candy, as well as a W hotel, tells you something about the area around Leicester Square. We're now crossing Whitcomb Street. If we look to our right, we can see the gateways of Chinatown. And we can see coming up on our right, the Trocadero. There's a lot to say here, but all you really need to know is it's always been about entertainment. Originally, it was a tennis court. Then in the 19th century, there was a circus, a subscription theater. It became a renowned center for prostitution in the late 19th century. And then it opens right at the end of the century as this, the Trocadero which becomes the centre of mass catering in the West End. It's bought by Jay Lyons. They are originally cake makers, responsible for Bakewell Tart, among other things. They open a restaurant here, then they open a corner house where you can get a nice cup of tea, and then a huge place in the 1920s with 3,000 seats. That all closes down in the 1960s, and the Trocadero reopened in the 80s. If you go inside, what you'll find is a vast windowless void leading to shops, to cafes, to cinemas, and so on. But I suggest walking on. So continue down Coventry Street. Now on our left, we can see Haymarket, another ancient lane. In the middle of the 17th century, there is a market for hay here. That's what the name means. And it serves the Royal Muse. We met them in the last episode. So we're crossing Haymarket and we find ourselves in Piccadilly Circus. We're going to pause by Eros, the statue in the middle. So we've made it through the crowds to Piccadilly Circus, but there are many people here. And we've got the first part of our story. We've got the development of areas north of the newly fashionable palace in the late 17th century, following the lead of Covent Garden, which we talked about in our first episode. Like Covent Garden, Soho has a slow evolution and a decline in some eyes in the 18th century as immigration and as immigrants begin to do their work. And then the whole thing is transformed in the 19th and 20th century with more immigrants, different kinds of activities, the turn to mass entertainment and the attempts by authorities to keep things in check. In the second half of the episode, we'll go through the looking glass to a very different world. But this is a good place to pause the podcast and think about what we've seen so far. Welcome back. Now we're going to see how the same model of aristocratic capitalism played out at the same time as Soho, the late 17th century, just a stone's throw away in St. James's. That's a neighborhood where wealth has continued to hold sway, where the wealthy have built houses and clubs and provided the demand for the shops and the services that will cater to their whims. To get there, we'll need to walk towards the palace, which explains why they're here. But we're starting here in Piccadilly Circus, next to Eros. It's a later invention. It's one anchor of a scheme to please a prince. But it also creates a barrier between the popular culture we've just passed through and the elite neighborhoods to our west. To cut a long story short, 1811, George III is mentally incapacitated. He has a liberal but a very debauched son, the Prince of Wales, who becomes regent. 
Prinny, as he's called, he thinks that London needs an upgrade. He wants to be on a par with Napoleon's Paris, uh, royal jealousy in play here. But also he wants to enhance his own prospects and properties. He's got a residence down towards the south on Pall Mall, Carlton House. He's also got royal estates north of Oxford Street. And so he hires John Nash. Welsh parents, brought up in Lambeth, where Eleanor Code is making her stone. He describes himself as thick, squat, dwarf figure with round head, snub nose and little eyes. But in 1789 he marries Mary Ann Bradley. She's possibly the prince's mistress and he's in. In 1806, he becomes head of what becomes the Crown Estate. We'll hear more about them in a minute. And in 1812, he publishes a plan for a splendid street which links Prinny's residence to a new suburb laid out around a new park, Regent's Park. Nash is quite explicit about what he's doing. What he promises, here's the quote, a complete separation between the streets and the squares occupied by the nobility and the gentry and the narrower streets and meaner houses occupied by mechanics and the trading part of the community. He means Soho. So he's going to separate that from Mayfair, which needs protecting, from St. James's, which is already in play. And, of course, he gets royal backing. He has the authority to knock things down. He knocks down quite a bit of what we're seeing around us now. But he also has to make some compromises along the way. What he's got to do is he's got to link the palace through the estates up to the park. So he has to curve around things that can't be knocked down because they're already there. So what he does is he creates circuses. He creates one here in Piccadilly. He creates one up in Oxford Street. And those kind of act as an anchor. But then things go badly wrong. George III dies. The prince becomes the new king. He moves to Buckingham House. The mansion, Carlton House, gets knocked down. Then Parliament stops providing cash. They're a little tired of financing the king's whims. And so Nash has to find money to finance the whole thing, and plans have to change. He scrambles for tenants, and so on and so forth. The project drags on all the way into the 1830s. And at the end of it, it's hardly Napoleonic, if you compare it with the boulevards of Paris. There's lots of creamy stucco, which you can see still around us, covering very traditionally sooty brick. And there's a lot of shoddy workmanship behind the facades. But Regent Street, on the other side of Piccadilly Circus from us now, becomes a place to see and be seen. The Crown Estate says that no butchers or bakers will be allowed. So in the 18th century, you had parading in garden squares, nice private spaces. Here it's becoming more public along this new curvy boulevard. And here is an 1838 guidebook describing it. A noble street, with palace-like shops, in whose broad showy windows are displayed articles of the most splendid description, such as the neighbouring world of wealth and fashion are daily in want of. It should be visited on a summer's day in the afternoon, when the splendid carriages and elegantly attired pedestrians evince the opulence and taste of our magnificent metropolis. Regent Street has also done its work as a social barrier. It separated the entertainers and the immigrants and the fun times in Soho to our east from the quality and the interminable conversation further west. It doesn't solve the problem, though, either of poverty or traffic. Both get worse in the 19th century. Piccadilly Circus now, today, is a late 19th century invention. It gets set up when Shaftesbury Avenue gets built, going through the slums we talked about in the previous walk. Originally, you've got four blocks, each with curved corners, so you've got a circus. One of them gets knocked out, the northeast one. Eros gets put here in its place. It's not the end of the story. Then come the 20th century vandals. The first is shortly after World War I, a huge new hotel just down on Piccadilly. It wants a bigger back end, which backs onto Regent Street. So all the facades on Regent Street, Nash's facades, start coming down. They're replaced with what critics have called heavy, tedious, Baroque, Edwardian architecture. War veterans coming back from the front compare the destruction to what happened in Flanders. And then again in the post-war period. There's a plan to do here what we saw Richard Seifert did at St Giles. The London County Council wants more traffic flow. They're stopped by Parliament, but they keep going. Westminster Council now has plans here for three towers and a giant deck. Again, it's rejected by the government, not because it's going to destroy good stuff, but because it only increases traffic throughput by 20%, and they want 50 
So we have today's compromise. The circus has become a triangle. One of the original quadrants isn't here. Instead, we've got Eros. This is a tribute to the Earl of Shaftesbury, the poor man's Earl, a philanthropist who campaigned for better working conditions, for an end to child labour. This is a monument to him shortly after his death. Across the circus in the north, we've got the county fire office, which is where Regent Street turns left. There's some references to Nash's original with sculpture columns and stuff like that. Behind us, we've got the Criterion, a monster restaurant in the 1870s by a railway caterer with a basement theatre. That's what leads to Lion's Corner Houses, just across the street of the Trocadero. And, of course, we've got the adverts across the street. They exploded here in the 1920s. They were confined to this single corner in the 1970s. Digital came along in 1998. Today, I'm being told to love like a boss... Christmas always comes first, and to harness my power like a dragon. Still, though, Regent Street today is largely owned by Crown Estates. It's the sixth largest landowner in London. We'll meet the largest at the end of this walk. The estate actually comes with the office of the monarch. It's separate from the vast land holdings of the Windsor family. It's a 14.3 billion real estate business. It also has substantial holdings overseas. It also includes half of St. James, where we're going to go next. To get there, we're walking straight down Piccadilly just a little ways. Originally, this is just a lane through some fields. Its name comes from a tailor, Robert Baker, who got rich from Piccadils. Those are stiff collars which you have to wear if you're posh way back when. And he builds a grand house just east of us here, just east of the circus, and that was dubbed Piccadilly Hall. Then, late 19th century, 20th, it becomes what we're going to see. So we're turning left from the adverts and we're heading straight down Piccadilly across the street. So we're walking down Piccadilly now on the south side of the street. The traffic is never going to stop. On our right, we can see Air Street just glimpsing through there. We can see an arch gives us some faint sense of Nash's original plan for the link between these things. Then on our right, we've got what's now called the Dilly. This is the huge raised hotel whose big back end begins to destroy Nash's original. On our left, ahead of us, we've got Waterstones. And now as we're coming to it, we can see a very modern glass frontage Originally, this was a museum of geology, London's first public scientific museum in the middle of the 19th century. But this comes along in the 1930s. The store is called Simpsons, and you've got this uninterrupted shop frame, a new way of shopping. But we're continuing on down Piccadilly just a little bit further, and then we're turning left into a church courtyard, the Courtyard of St. James's. So here we are in the courtyard of St. James's. This is actually the entrance to the St. James's estate. It's built as part of the plan, and it's built by Christopher Wren. He's an old friend by now. We met him in our very first walk through the city of London. So let's go into the church under the tower. We can glimpse Wren's work on the way and continue on out the other side. If you happen to be here when the church is in fact closed, you can go back out of the courtyard, up Piccadilly again a little bit, and down Church Place. That will bring you out onto the same street, German Street. So here we are on German Street. German is actually the name of the aristocrat who builds the estate. It's the longest street in the estate. It gets built up in the 1660s, 1670s. By the early 19th century, it's very well known for private hotels. And then in the 20th century, you see what you see today. Shirt makers, above all, Harvey and Hudson, directly opposite at number 97. There are a few other things as well. Shoe shops, a very good cheese shop at 93 if you need some Stilton. 
but we're turning left and immediately right down Duke of York Street. So here we are walking down Duke of York Street. On our right, we've got the Red Lion. Right next to it, we've got a very strange building built right at the end of the 19th century, but pretending to be four centuries earlier. Uh, one critic said that it has neurotically tall windows. And then on the other side of the street, Apple Tree Yard, with a little monument to Edwin Lutyen. We've met him before. He's the architect of New Delhi, and it's here that he drew up the plans for the capital of India. That's how imperialism works. We're continuing down Duke of York Street and we're going to cross over into the square we can see in front of us now, St. James's Square. So here we are in the middle of St. James's Square. Around us I've got very grand buildings, the square is quite quiet, the rumble of the city is a long way away. It's clear we're not in Soho anymore. Aristocratic capitalism takes different forms in different places at different times. Originally, the area around here is devoted to a leper hospital. That's turned into a palace by Henry VIII. But then, again, comes the Restoration, 1660. Charles II, the king back on the throne, keeps his mistresses nearby. He also likes playing something close to croquet called Pala Amalio. And he moves the site for that from Pall Mall, which we'll see in a minute, and creates a dedicated space in a newly laid out park. The whole thing, the whole court, becomes a magnet for fashion. We've heard this before. A few years later, the pulling power of Westminster and of this area in particular is increased even further by the fire in the city and then the exodus. So, Henry German, we've just seen his name on the street. He's the Earl of St Albans. He gets his hands on the land and he also gets permission to build, probably thanks to a very good relationship with the king's mum. What he wants is a square with ten great and good houses, but courtiers are cheapskates. They don't want to pay. So he copies Southampton. We've seen him in the previous episode doing his thing in Bloomsbury. He reduces the size of the plots and he lets them to the titled and to developers. Of course, the whole thing is still very grand. We've got Wren's Church, which we've just seen. German's house on the east side of the square is 120 feet wide. Soon, though, the square does house six dukes, seven earls, pretty good going. A few years later, a Lady Wentworth in 1708 comes looking on behalf of her son, who needs a suitable place in the city, and she writes to him about the first house that was built in the square. I have been to see a very good house in St James's Square. It has three large rooms forward and two little ones backward, closets and marble chimney pieces and hearths to all the and best ironbacks to the chimneys. There is two pretty closets with chimneys and glass over them and pictures in the wainscot over most of the chimneys. Brass locks to all the doors, wainscot at bottom and top and slips of boards for the hangings. There will want little to be done to it. There is backstairs, two coach houses and stable for two horses, rooms for servants, very good offices, a yard for the drying of clothes and leads for that purpose, a stable yard and a horse pond and back gate. Many of the houses are much narrower than that, but it is still possible to be fashionable and highly inappropriate in a shoebox. Three years later, Jonathan Swift underlines the novelty of vertical living. Today, in the morning, I visited upward. First, I saw the Duke of Ormond below the stairs. Then I went up one pair of stairs and sat with the Duchess. Then I went up another pair of stairs and paid a visit to Lady Betty. And I desired her woman to go up to the garret, that I might pass half an hour with her. But she would not. Jonathan Swift, a great satirist, but a man typical of his time. And, like all estates, St James's includes the things you need to make the houses run. Cottages for servants, stables for horses, warehouses and workshops to supply stuff. Like Ormond Yard, where we met Lutyens just now. It's also got a market to the east, just next to Haymarket. That was rebuilt by Nash, destroyed in 1916. It's just been redeveloped. 
And the square kicks off more buildings. Soon development is spreading north up to beyond Piccadilly into Mayfair, which we'll see in our next episode. And over the years, of course, there's been much rebuilding. Most of the houses now from the middle of the 18th century onwards. By the late 19th century, you've got residential chambers, you've got clubs, you've got institutions, you've got offices in the 1930s. So what you've got today is a real mix, but a very grand mix. Over in the northeast corner, red brick, cream facings to the windows, originally built for the Duke of Kent in the early 18th century. Now it's the Naval and Military Club. They recently relocated here from Piccadilly. On the north side of the square, just left of Duke of York Street, we've got a building from the same time, 1730s. This is now Chatham House, the Institute of International Affairs. What happens at Chatham House stays at Chatham House. Those are the Chatham House rules. Over in the northwest corner, on the left-hand side, we've got the London Library, 1896. Next to it, a 1740s building, very Greek, and then a huge frontage. This was the Earl's original house. Aristocrats for the first 150 years, then a merchant, and then it was leased to the East India Club. That had been founded in 1849 for officers of the East India Company. We've met them before in the City of London. The irony, of course, is the club is founded just before the company loses control in 1858 and then is dissolved in 1874. By then, they've demolished their old quarters and they built this one. This is 1860s, although it is trying to look much older. And they've kept going since by amalgamating with other clubs. A sports club in 1938, a public schools club and the Devonshire Club in the 1970s. The elite keeps reproducing itself, even if its raison d'etre has disappeared. Given the story of the square, the things we're going to find in the rest of St James's won't come as much of a surprise. The establishment maintains its grip on wealth, power and influence, in part by making sure that anybody who wants to have these things has to own, think and do more or less the same thing. But we're going to leave the square just to really drive this point home. Head east down Charles II Street. So we're heading down Charles II Street. In the distance, at the very end, we can see the Theatre Royal Haymarket, part of Nash's great scheme. But we're not going that far. We're going to take the first right on Waterloo Place. So we're heading down Waterloo Place now. We're heading towards a very tall column, the Duke of York's column. Continue down and cross the street Pall Mall. We'll see you there. So here we are, standing in Waterloo Place. We've got our backs to the Duke of York's column. We're looking back up Lower Regent Street towards the county fire office where we started the walk, Piccadilly Circus. If we'd been here 200 years ago, we'd have been in the Prince of Regent's palace. The palace dates back a little bit earlier. When Prinny comes along in the 1780s, he starts frantically redecorating on a Parisian model. He uses French decorators. The original budget is apparently 20,000. By 1795, he's 610,000 in debt, which was a lot of money at the time. And then, of course, he becomes king and he pulls it down and Nash has to redo things. So here we're seeing the bottom end, the grand entry to Nash's scheme. We're also obviously surrounded by the statuary, which you can see throughout this bit of Westminster. Ahead of us, we've got a monument to the Crimean War. But the real story here is the clubs. This is the beginning of clubland. We already saw a few of them in St. James's Square. They stretch down Pall Mall to our left, and they're going to be with us to the end of the walk. This story starts earlier in the 18th century. We've got the city's coffee houses moving west. A chocolate house, in fact, becomes the first of these, a new club for the elite. This is what had been public, beginning to go private, indoors, away from prying eyes. We'll meet those clubs at the end of the walk. 
But then, in the early 19th century, there's a new demand for urban retreat by the middle classes. Of course, not really the middle classes. We're still talking the elite. They just don't have titles and estates in the countryside. They're beginning to congregate according to professional or intellectual interests. And we're standing between two of them. On our right, we've got what was actually built by Nash. Built here in 1827, though the club's a little bit older, it's the United Service Club, a military club for people returning from the Napoleonic Wars. These days it's occupied by the Institute of Director. And then to our left, a little later in 1828, the Athenaeum, a more intellectually inclined club by Nash's assistant and somebody who becomes his rival as well, Decimus Burton. Contrasting styles as well, Greek versus Roman, staring at each other across Waterloo Place. A little later, a little further down Pall Mall, we'll see them from the backside, the Travellers Club, the Reform Club. By the end of the 19th century, there are a hundred private men's clubs in this small area. There are eight for the Army and Navy, there are five for Oxbridge, and there are nine for women, too, because most of the men's clubs do not admit women. If we just briefly glance right towards Haymarket, which we saw earlier, we can see a very different world. Nash tidied things up there too, but that's Theatreland, the beginning of Theatreland. Licensing for theatres is liberalised, theatres proliferate in the middle of the 19th century, and so, of course, prostitution does as well. Dostoevsky, in 1862, comments on girls, quote, aged about 12, who seize you by the arm and beg you to come with them. And there has always been that contrast between Regent Street and Haymarket, We can see a tower here. That's actually a New Zealand building. The New Zealand government wanted to build an 18-storey tower, despite the height restrictions that were in play. The county council hesitated. They didn't want the city wrecked. But the cabinet overruled it. New Zealand is a white member of the Commonwealth, after all. So you have what you see now, the West End's bleakest street corner. So let's continue. We're turning round now to face the column and take the next right down Carlton House Terrace. As we turn right down Carlton House Terrace, we can see what Nash replaced the palace with. What he's done here is he's raised the terrace above the mall, which is below us, on cast iron columns. And now almost the whole terrace is occupied by institutions. Right on the corner here, we've got the British Academy. Then we've got the Foreign Press Association, the Institute for Contemporary Art. Number 13 is owned by the Hinduja brothers. They're worth 17 billion. On the right, we've got the Royal Society, the scientists coming to retreat from the world. Then the Turf Club, you can see some horseshoes on their door. And then at the end, the Royal Academy of Engineering. And then on our right, we've got the backs of the clubs. We've got the Athenaeum, we've got the Travellers Club, we've got the Reform Club, all with these very grand gardens. The Reform Club, at the end, on the next corner, is built in 1841. It has a wonderful inner glazed courtyard. It has a steam engine under the pavement to pump and heat water that goes through the club itself. And we are going to turn right here to get back onto Pall Mall. So as we come to the end of the Reform Club garden, we've actually stumbled on a film shoot. This is a popular area to represent what we think when we think about London. And we're turning right here on Cornwallis Terrace, then left again on Pall Mall. Thank you. We're continuing down Pall Mall. We're heading towards the end of it now. More clubs on our left. The Royal Automobile Club, built at the beginning of the 20th century, but trying very hard to be classical, although it's not. At this point, clubs are almost becoming luxury hotels. This is steel frame. There's a swimming pool in the basement. Then on our right, on the north side of Pall Mall, leading into St. James's Square, a very modern building, but another club. This is another military club, the Army and Navy Club. There was a much older building here. It was bombed during the war, and this is what went up instead in the 60s. My dad was a member here for a little bit. 
And now a little further on, again on our left, another classical attempt, the Oxford and Cambridge Club, this time from the 1830s. This is Robert Smirk, who built the British Museum and who loved this kind of thing. But it's a very incoherent frontage. The Oxford and Cambridge actually had to merge with another club in 1971 and made the very progressive step of admitting women as full members in 1997. We're continuing on to the end of the street. And as we round the corner here, we can begin to see a much older building. So straight ahead of us, we've got the palace on our left. We've got number 88, you can see, on our right. We're going to stand right between them. So we're standing with our backs to St. James's Palace. We're looking up St. James's Street. This is the palace that was built for Henry VIII in the 1530s originally on the site of a hospital for female lepers. And it's the thing that after the restoration draws the elite to this part of town. When Whitehall burns at the end of the 17th century, this becomes the chief court. There are many additions over the years. It's still not very impressive for some people. Daniel Defoe in the 1720s called it really mean. Still, it is the official residence of the monarch, even though they haven't lived here since Victoria's time. So ambassadors to the UK are still appointed to the court of St. James. But to continue our story about the elite, this is why they cluster here. And this is why St. James Street ahead of us has all the things they need to maintain their status. There's building here from the early 17th century. It's paved in 1662. There's some lodging, there's some coffee and some chocolate houses. And it takes off in the 18th century as St. James's begins to go up in the world. Looking over to the street now, close to the bottom on the right-hand side, we've got a black-fronted building. This is Berry Bross and Rudd. They've been here since 1699. The building's a little bit later. They're the wine merchants. A couple of shots up from that, you've got Locke and company. They're a little later, 1765. They make your hats. And then a few doors after that, Lobb from the middle of the 19th century, bespoke shoes. Those complement the shirt makers we saw on German Street. To end this episode, though, to reflect on what we've seen, we're just going to walk a little bit up St. James's Street and then turn into a courtyard, a very modernist courtyard, on our right-hand side. We're walking up St. James's Street. We're crossing over King Street now. We glance left and we can see the banners for Christie's, one of the big auction houses where you can sell off your family jewels. On our right, we've got a cigar shop, another attribute of a respectable lifestyle. We're continuing up St. James's Street. Next on our right, we've got Ryder Street. And on the corner with Ryder Street, we've got the first of these modernist blocks. We're going just beyond that again on St. James's Street and then turning into the courtyard we can see appearing now. So here we are in Smithson Plaza and finally the roar of the traffic has gone down just a little bit. Part of the story here, part of the story at the end of this episode is more about the clubs. These are the early clubs. The earliest white, originally a chocolate house, is a little further up St. James's Street. It's from the 1730s. It's notorious for gambling. It's the bane, according to Swift, of half the English nobility. It's a Tory stronghold. The King and the Prince of Wales are still members of that one. Right here across the street and right next to us in Smithson Plaza, we've got two more. Came from the same starting point. This was a group of guys who tried to get into whites, were blackballed, excluded from membership, and so started up their own thing. Again, this was a gambling club. It was down on Pall Mall. It split into two factions, largely on political grounds. And so we have Brooks on the west side of the street we're looking at and Boodles right next to us here. Gambling was a mainstay of aristocratic life in the 18th century. You could lose a fortune overnight. Back down St. James's Street, as we came up on the other side of the street, we passed the Carlton Club. This is the home of the Tory party, started in the 1830s and is still a bastion of conservative politics today. 
Until 2008, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, was the only full woman member. Since then, women have been members, but certainly not here at Boodles, Brooks or White's. But the other part of the story is the modernist buildings which constitute this plaza. These were originally built in the 1960s for The Economist, the magazine. Founded in 1843, very much pro-free trade, but at least unlike the Tory party, sometimes insists that you need to understand markets if you're going to make the best of them. The Economist actually moved out a few years ago in 2017, but you have here some icons of modernist architecture in the early post-war period. This is by Peter and Alison Smithson. You've got three towers. The tallest 18 stories is for the magazine. In front of it, you have a bank building, and in back, you have a slightly taller residential block. Aristocracy is the pretense that some people are better than others, even that they're born to rule. Allied with capitalism here in the West End, it spawned a series of villages centred on grand townhouses on garden squares with a church and some mews and some services close by. But the estates were never immune to the march of time. Here in St James's, Close to the court, secure behind Nash's barricade, the elite could keep up appearances, admitting newcomers and new things when necessary, but always on its own terms. In Soho, where we started this episode, they had to retreat. They let the market, they let the people have their say and way. In the next episode, we'll be exploring two more villages behind the barricade, Mayfair and Marylebone, on either side of Oxford Street. We'll be seeing the different kinds of place that wealth can create, as well as its inability to stop the march of commerce, even if most of us can't afford the stuff that is for sale. We're going to begin that story in the courtyard of the Royal Academy, back up on Piccadilly, just to our north, halfway between Piccadilly Circus and Green Park. We'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.